Thank you, Infante sisters. I love to hear sisters sing. They all sound like one voice, and then you can't figure out who's doing what part when they go into harmony. It's amazing how God does that. But uh, would you take your Bibles and turn to the book of John? First part of the Gospel of John there. We concluded our time in verse 50 of chapter 1 last Sunday. I'll point our direction there as we jump back into the Gospel this morning. John chapter 1 and verse 50. Nathaniel here has just confessed that Jesus is the Son of God, the King of Israel, and Jesus' response to him, Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. So we have here the beginning of Christ's ministry. We discussed a little bit of how he called some of his disciples last week and their responsibility to follow him. And his assurance to them was that they would see these greater things. And as he begins his ministry, we have his first miracle right off the bat here described in John chapter 2. Jerry read it just a few moments ago. And Jesus uh, performed many signs. Uh, We can describe these as miracles or wonders or special actions. And John has recorded many of those for us. And at the end of the passage that Pastor Jerry read, it said that in verse 11 of chapter 2, that Christ's glory was manifested, that his glory was seen through this particular sign that we'll discuss here in just a moment, but throughout all of his works that he did uh, during his earthly ministry, they were to reveal his glory, to reinforce the fact of who he is and what he was there to accomplish. So we want to just work through these first few verses as Jesus has a conversation with his mother. And it's a very simple conversation, not a lot of words, kind of like the conversations last week, but plenty here in this text to understand and try to uh, take away. So just have three simple points for you, and and those of you who have been around uh, long enough, you know I'm not a very creative person, so my outlines are typically not alliterated. Today it just fit, it was real easy. So number one, you have the context, number two, you have the conversation, and number three, you have the conclusion. So not real, real technical, I understand that, but I'm a simple guy, and I would rather you understand the truth and have some takeaways, and uh, hopefully the Holy Spirit will be able to use it and accomplish His purposes through it. But let's begin here with the context of uh, the situation where we find Jesus having this first conversation. It tells us in the text there that three days later, chapter 2 and verse 1, three days later, uh, Jesus is now in Galilee at a little town called Cana, and uh, there is a wedding taking place, and Jesus is invited to the wedding. It's a marriage celebration, and Jesus is invited, his disciples are invited, And uh, we find his mother, Mary, at this uh, occasion, at this event. Uh, She's already present, it seems, from the text. 
And as well, we probably can make some conclusions that she probably has some sort of role in the wedding. Um, She's definitely aware of the need that has come to play. Perhaps this was a family member, uh, uh, that Cana was not far from Nazareth where Jesus grew up, so perhaps she was part of the family. Maybe she was just in charge of some of the hospitality. But at some point, she has uh, taken the, the responsibility or taken the initiative, perhaps, to be able to address a need that has come up during this celebration. Uh, we have here uh, a celebration that is very different than the weddings that we experience in our modern day. Um, they were a quite a bit uh, larger celebrations than what we probably uh, experience. Um, today you have, uh, as I meet with the groom and bride and, and some of the preparations for uh, wedding ceremonies, a lot of times what I hear from them is, we just want a quick in and out. So it, they, they typically don't want me to say a lot. Uh, they want to just kind of have a, a, a quick service. They want to get it done and get to the reception. And even the receptions um, in, in our day would not be like this that's described in, in the scriptures. The, re, the receptions today would be, you know, sometimes just a, a simple dessert cake reception. Maybe there's some appetizers. From time to time, it'll be a sit-down meal. Um, but what we have in the Jewish culture in this day was a celebration that would go on for many, many days. Uh, sometimes these celebrations would go up to a whole week in, in, in as far as the duration of it. And I realized that most of the guys in the room just groaned in their minds. Um, ladies, if you can imagine trying to convince your husband to go to a seven-day wedding feast... I realize that, uh, you know, it's hard to get guys to attend a, a wedding like on a Saturday. You know, it's like, oh, it's in the middle of the day. It disrupts everything going on. And, uh, but here we have an occasion where it's, this is a celebration, a feast that could take multiple days. It was literally a very, very large party. And Jesus is here, and he is enjoying this social event. Um, I want to just say, as we start here, just some comments that his presence at this occasion teaches us and, and reveals to us that he was a normal person, that he was a person who enjoyed the simple pleasures of life. He was a normal guy that was invited to a wedding on a regular occurrence, and he was there with his friends, and he was celebrating. Sometimes we get the picture of, of Jesus, that he was this uh, very serious character, and, and no doubt he was uh, at, at the right time and place. Uh, but sometimes we can portray that image. Of, I was looking at the pictures of Jesus even that we have here on display, and he's, his, his face is very serious, and um, we should have a smile on him maybe. That, that, uh, we should have thought about that. But, but it, this was just an, an ordinary occasion of life, and Jesus was here. Um, John the Baptist, in contrast, he operated his life, he, he operated very specifically um, what, what he would allow himself to do, and, and he, he lived a very uh, sometimes secluded and very simple life. But Jesus here is, in contrast to that, living a very, very normal life. And, um, and, and so I think we, we can learn just some simple things 
and, and, and right takeaways about our Savior, that he was a normal person, he understood normal events in life. It's inter- interesting that his first miracle was a situation that was just kind of a, a, a normal occurrence. Um, a lot of his miracles were big in the sense that maybe it was bringing someone back to life who had died or someone who had been paralyzed. He, he allowed them to walk or someone who was blind. He made them. His first miracle, his first glory, part of him that, that his glory was on display was an ordinary occasion where he could step in and really, really help. Now, I want to I want to just as well, um, you know, just, again, these conversations and these moments in Jesus' life hopefully will speak into ours um, that, that, you know, we can probably learn uh, as far as following Christ's example of how we should even be in situations like this, um, where we have times in life where people are rejoicing and celebrating and we're supposed to rejoice with those who rejoice and Jesus was doing that. Sometimes people operate with the mindset that, that in order to have a good time, um, that something must be wrong or, or you know, something legal must be happening or something immoral. That people, you know, in, in this kind of a setting, that, 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 that there's probably something wrong there. And there's, you know, sometimes we can go to moments like this and we can make criticism and even judgments on people. And I, and I don't think that was the mindset. I think Jesus was here in this moment, and he was joyful, and he was comfortable. And, and I think it's as well worth noting, and, and I don't know that I can change the system, but the groom in the Jewish culture was responsible for this event, I don't know where it all got turned, where the girl's family is responsible. I mean, talking about, uh, I'm a father of three daughters, right? And, and as I was studying this and realizing that the pressure on the groom's family, um, because the, the groom would have been responsible for this multiple-day feast. And, and this was actually a moment of, of or in the social perspective where with the running out of wine in this moment would have looked very negatively upon the groom and his family. Not just here, but probably, you know, for quite some time. I read one commentator, and I don't know where he didn't give evidence as, as to where, you know, he, he found this, but one commentator made the, the statement that even lawsuits could be, could come up from a situation like this where it was such a social uh, faux pas that you would just not be in a situation where you would run out of wine in a moment like this. This was a very, very big deal. So when Mary approaches Jesus in this moment, this is, this is a huge thing socially. Now, in the bigger scope of life, we understand there's much bigger problems and, and things that could go wrong. But in this moment, this was a very, very big deal. And the, the account that is told to us, right, right there in the scripture, chapter 2 and verse 2, both Jesus and disciples uh, were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. So we immediately jump into the conversation. Uh, Mary is concerned about what is happening. This is definitely a crisis socially. It's a serious problem. It's a major embarrassment. And Mary brings it to Jesus' attention. 
And I want to just try to help us understand the reality of the situation that is taking place because I do think that there have been, through the years, preachers who have done all kinds of gymnastics around this text to get around what was actually happening here. And, and that's really sad when, when you see that happening. In fact, um, you know, pre- preachers have said from time to time, this is not fermented uh, juice, you know, and they've made all kinds of points along those lines. And, and, and I just really think a lot of times it's, it's men that have read their opinions back into a text rather than letting a text speak for itself and you make the right conclusions. And, and so I want to just reinforce the fact that we must read the Bible for what it says. And we must understand it accurately. You know, post-Reformation, we would hold to the fact, and we would even probably say, that we believe in sola scriptura, which means that we stand on the scripture alone. But then sometimes we actually don't really follow that. Sometimes it's scripture and then our opinion about the scripture. And I just want to take this moment to remind us that we must really take the scripture for what it says. In fact, we are bound to what the scripture says, not what we want it to say. And so let's speak to this situation of the subject of wine in the Bible. I think this is an appropriate time. I was thinking through my years of, of preaching, I think I'm in year 16 or 17 now, and, and I've never done a whole sermon on alcohol. And I thought, well, the Bible talks about alcohol through, almost through the entire scripture. And I've never done a message on it. And I'm not going to today, but I do want to highlight. <laughs> no church splits, hopefully, this morning. But I do want to speak to the subject a little bit because the occasion and the context here is a situation of celebration. And, um, and it is, inclu- with this celebration, is included wine. Now, I'll start my comments in this section with uh, just understanding how difficult this subject can be for some people. I realize that there are people here today who have struggled with alcoholism in their past. And Christ has redeemed you from it. And I realize that some of you maybe perhaps grew up in a home where you had a parent who was an alcoholic. I realize in a group this size, maybe, maybe not here presently, but maybe someone online listening today has been affected by, by a drunk driver and, and, and maybe a tragic accident has happened along those lines. I understand addiction. I get it. And so with that, I, I want to be compassionate and, and careful. And I want you to really hear my words carefully this morning. But wine in the scripture was a symbol of joy. Some of you are gasping inside. Yes, I just said that from the pulpit. Wine in the scripture is a symbol of joy. You say, where does that come from? Well, let's just look at some passages of scripture and let them speak. I'm going to read them, but the scripture is speaking. He, meaning referring to God, 
causes the grass to grow for the cattle, the vegetation for the labor of man, so that he might bring forth food from the earth and wine which makes man's heart glad, so that he may make his face glisten with oil and food which sustains man's heart. Wine in the Scripture, in this passage and others, is a symbol of joy. Here's a passage in Genesis 27 where uh, Isaac is giving a blessing. And part of his blessing is this. Now may God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and an abundance of grain and new wine. So in, in, in a father's blessing to his son... Part of it was included was this joyful blessing of God, which included fruit and labor, uh, fruit from labor and, and sustenance, and with that was included wine. Deuteronomy 33, 28. So Israel, I'm just kind of progressively working through the scripture, if you, you notice. And I there's probably a hundred references to, to alcohol in scripture. I could we could go on and on today. But here's just a few. Deuteronomy 33, 28. So Israel dwells in security and the fountain of Jacob secluded in the land of grain and new wine. His heavens also drop with dew. So included with the security and and the joyful blessing of God on a land, the land of Israel and the people of God at this time included was, was wine. Now, this probably hit me some 10 years ago uh, more than it ever had before when I actually was able to visit the Holy Land. And, and once I was able to visit the Holy Land and walk through a lot of the cultural aspects of the day in which Jesus and the biblical narratives took place and, and then be able to understand the culture and, and have even uh, people speak into it, I understood so much more that, that the fruit of the vine in Israel was a symbol of God's blessing. We cannot get around that. In fact, it was very much part of the Jewish culture. And, and uh, I remember asking our guide uh, on occasion, and, and he would explain to me, he said, you know, a lot in, in Western culture and in Western Christianity, in the last couple hundred years, there was, there was this strong stance against alcohol. And I understand why, and, 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 and I, we'll speak to that in just a minute. But from a Jewish perspective, it would have been part of life from the very beginning. In fact, there's other cultures that it's still like that today. But from a Jewish perspective, they would have had wine on a regular basis. And it would have been something that was, that was part of even their worship. You say, really, their worship? Yeah, look, look at this passage. But the vine said to them, and this is a, a, a parable, shall I leave my new wine which cheers God and man and go to the wave over the trees? So this is a, a, a parable that we're talking about the vine speaking to other trees. And, and with this, you have this statement, shall I leave my new wine? And notice this, which cheers God and man? Now, these are some of the passages that we like to just skip over. 
when we have strong opinions about something. Now, stay with me all the way to the end, please. But this was part of God's plan for man and part of his blessing. Look at Nehemiah. We will also bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the new wine and the, and the oil to the priests at the chambers of the house of our God, and the tithe of our ground to the Levites. For the Levites are they who receive the tithes in all the ritual uh, rural towns. So part of the even offering was the, the drink offering, part of that was wine. Where that was part of their worship to God was bringing the fruit of the vine to God. Ecclesiastes 9, 7. We're just, again, progressively working through the scriptures. Go then, eat your bread in happiness and drink your wine with a cheerful heart. For God has already approved your works. Again, a different perspective perhaps that maybe you have been taught or maybe you've even thought about before. But from a true biblical perspective, wine was a symbol of joy and a symbol of God's blessing. You have, uh, I didn't read the passages, but Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, part of the drink offering. Um, and, and then 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 23 for medicinal purposes. Um, so there's a lot in the scripture uh, that refers to this particular element uh, that God created and Jesus himself is creating in our text today. Now, just like anything, it can be abused and it has been abused. Much of God's creation, all of it was good. And sin had an effect on it. And so there is a lot in the scripture that discusses the abuse of alcohol. So I've just given you a lot of positive things about alcohol, but there are a lot of negative as well. Perhaps those are the ones that you're more familiar with. But there is, and I'll just say very clearly, there is no ground for any kind of intoxication in the Scripture. None. No ground for it at all. In fact, we have... Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And there are multiple warnings in Scripture about the abuse of alcohol. Uh, Proverbs 21, wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. So, again, There is a whole spectrum of truth revealed to us by our God on the subject of alcohol. Yes, true fermented drink. And and again, I I really don't give any uh, credence to to people who will try to justify, uh, and, and I understand all the differences. So there are differences between what we have today and what we had in that day. The amount of alcohol, the percentages in the drink that was used in this day was much lower than it is today. The distillation process uh, is, is, is far advanced, and so you have alcoholic drinks that have some you know, high percentages of alcohol today. That is not what they were drinking back in this day. But we cannot get around the fact that they were drinking alcohol. They drank probably a lot more of it in order to be intoxicated, which is why there are a lot of warnings. 
But you cannot conclude that this is just grape juice or, or some uh, amount of alcohol for purification process. Now, I understand, I read the first Timothy pro, uh, passage there, that, that it was helpful for the purification process of, of you know, the water, and, and, and I get all that. But you cannot get around the fact that this was created by God, it was created for joy, but because of our sin, it has been abused, and it was a problem. And so we come to the biblical conclusion that many people, many godly people, drank wine in the Scripture. Maybe, and I, and I say maybe, and I probably shouldn't. I think maybe I just, I'm scared to say it out loud, but uh, I think Jesus himself drank wine because the Bible tells us uh, later that, that Jesus made the statement, you accuse John the Baptist of being this because he, you know, did not drink and eat, but you accuse me, I come, Jesus says, I come eating and drinking, and you call me a glutton. So Jesus makes a statement, not only did he create it here in our passage, but he makes a statement later that probably indicates that this was something that was part of his life also. Now, there probably are people who disagree with me, and, and I understand that. I'm just trying to help us be a people who take the Bible as it actually, what it actually says and not read our opinions back in it. So, as far as just wrapping this part of the message up, um, again, we see in Scripture this was an element created by God. It was a symbol of joy and His blessing. You, I was speaking with someone this week, and they said even today in Israel— they will say God's blessing is on their land because there are many, many vineyards in places where it used to be desert. And, and they would see the hand of God, based on all these Old Testament uh, passages, they would see the hand of God is upon them again because of the fruit of the vine. So there are many positive things taught in the Scripture along these lines, but there are a lot of warnings and we need to heed those warnings and be very, very careful. And so you may listen to the warnings that, that speak about all the drunkenness, but even sometimes um, just the warnings about leadership, that, that a pastor or deacon should, should not be given to drunkenness. There's other uh, the, the Scripture talks about kings and those in leaders, and it would be better to, to not do that. And so I am perfectly fine, and, and I'm not advocating that people open up to something that, that they never have before. That's not my point. I just want us to take the Scripture for what it actually says and, 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 and be honest with it. So you may come to a conclusion. Maybe you've always operated with a conclusion a certain way, and I have no problem with that because I think you can build a perspective from the wisdom literature in the Scripture of, of an abstinence approach to that. I, and I see it, and, and, and I, I will not be the one saying, you're, not, you're coming to the wrong conclusions. Absolutely not. But on the flip side, I'm not going to be the guy who says, you know what? There's, there's warnings here, therefore you can't partake in any way. I don't think that's the biblical conclusion. I don't think that's it. Now, you, you better, with the help of the Holy Spirit and the Scripture, be convinced in your own mind. I think that's what that Romans tells us. 
That whatsoever, not, whatsoever is not a faith is sin. So you have to take all of these types of situations in life. And yes, we need to, and I think the church needs to talk about it more. I was, I was kind of ashamed. I'm like, wow, 16 years and you've been scared to talk about it when every single day people are bombarded with advertisements and media uh, outlets who just bombard us with thoughts about all of this this whole industry and and this is a huge part of our culture and i've been too scared to talk about it i think the church needs to talk about it. i think it's a problem that we have talked about it many times in the wrong way and and so you have younger younger uh, generations of christians and believers who are serious about the word and they open their bibles and they see what the scripture says and then they hear what they've been taught in years past and it does not match and that's where some of the rub comes in with the younger believers it's like you know what you're not consistent you say this that the the scripture is is you know you have to take it literally and and, and carefully and, and then you read opinions into it and so as a pastor and in fact as we talked about as a pastoral team we were all agreement that that i could say these things today and i was going to be try to be as very careful as possible but we're all in agreement that we have to let the Bible speak for itself. And, and we're not going to live in fear of, of, of perhaps what people's opinions. And again, I am not advocating for anything. Except, can we be honest with the scriptures? And Jesus here is in, in a situation where his mom, and this is the conversation, it's very simple. Mary comes up to Jesus and says, there's no more wine. This is a problem. Back in the text, if you want to join me there, verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now listen to what Jesus says. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. So we have just a few statements and I want to talk about him. Mary comes to Jesus with the problem. Mary understands who her son is. And, and she understands really what, what uh, and has faith in what has been communicated to her some 30 years ago. So she's, imagine, she's been waiting for Jesus to reveal himself. Now, I don't know how much uh, maternal pride is in this. You know, maybe she's proud of him. Like, Jesus, show yourself off. I, I I'm probably reading into the text at this point. But we do know she has faith in her son that he can solve this problem. And so she comes to him with a simple need, and his response to her is, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, that, that phrase, woman, what does this have to do, in English, that sounds a lot more harsh than what it actually is. If, if you were to go to your wife, perhaps, or your mother, and, and, you know, there were seasons of time in past where men did not speak kindly to women, and, and they degraded them, and, and they used statements like, in, would talk, woman, go do this, or woman, your place is in the kitchen. Again, I'm not for any of that. <laughs> I probably just made a lot of people mad. That is not what Jesus is saying here. In fact, this could actually, the conclusion could be made that this is actually a term of endearment because he uses the same term 
to speak to her when he was dying on the cross, one of his final words when he was speaking to his mom. So the right, probably English translation would be more of like, uh, dear woman, or madame, uh, or madame, or, or uh, my lady. I'm not English, and I don't have a very good English accent, but my lady. He probably is distancing himself a little bit here in the relationship. So really maybe transitioning to her savior with utmost respect and care, but knowing he is the savior and she needs a savior. And it's interesting, some of the denominational perspectives of Mary that I would say are wrong, they're not based in scripture, put more emphasis on Mary than they should. Passages like this reveal that actually she was just like the rest of us and she was looking to her son as the all-powerful one. He was the savior. But he says, what does this have to do with me? And he's not saying, mom, this isn't my problem. I don't care. <laughs> That's not what he was saying. He, because he follows up with, my hour has not yet come. And, and I think the, the point of his statement here is that he cannot, he, it's not time for him to completely reveal himself. And, and this hour refers to really everything that he came to accomplish. Now, part of that was living the righteous life in order to go to the cross and, and, and accomplish on the cross what his father wanted him to accomplish. So he, he wasn't at a place, in fact, all throughout John chapter 7, chapter 8, uh, chapter 12 and verse 23, 24, 27, chapter 17, we have this phrase, the hour of Christ refers to the cross and his resurrection. So when he says, uh, dear lady, dear, dear woman, my hour has not yet come. What, I, I can't do this. He's not saying I can't perform the miracle, but what she was probably wanting him to do was explain through this moment to everyone who was in attendance, the Savior has come. And his response yet is like, no, it's not here yet. It's not time. Now, the movement of Jesus here is that he would follow through and he would perform the task that needed to be done, which I think is, is, is an amazing thing where he meets the need, but he does it quietly. How do we know that? Well, the text tells us that the head waiter didn't even know. The servants knew because Mary said to the servants, do whatever he says. And he says, go take those six pots over there, fill them up to the brim, they were there for purification process, part of the ceremony, ceremonial cleansing. Take them and fill up. And in that one of those moments, instantaneously, we have Jesus, the creator, creating out of, of something that was not there, it became there. So a process that would have taken days, weeks, months, even longer for the wine to ferment, Jesus did instantly. He created as he did early on when he created the world. In the beginning was the Word, and everything was through him. So Jesus here creates some 120 to 180 gallons of wine instantly. And it was of no effort to him. He literally just told them, go take some water, fill those pots up, 
Then take, the wa- uh, take uh, some out of that and take it over to the head waiter. That's, that's the storyline that takes place. Jesus said, fill the water pots with water. They filled them up, and he said to them, draw some out now. Take it to the head waiter. And so they took it to him, and sure enough, Jesus had created, and no surprise, the best wine. So much so that the head waiter would tasting it would say, wow, this is not what normally happens. What normally happens is people give the, the best wine first, so we probably can make some conclusions that they're far along in the celebration. Maybe it was a week, who knows the, the full details, but the, the celebration had been going on where the head waiter's like, wow, this is a change. You saved the best for last. Well, Jesus made it, and so it would be perfect. It would be the best. And so let's just, uh, let's look at some conclusions here that, that we can, I think, take away about this um, conversation and this event in Jesus' life. And, and remember, we're doing life with Jesus. That's the theme of the year. And, and we're talking about these conversations because Jesus has revealed himself little by little. And, and he is helping us understand what he's like so that therefore we can try to be like him. And so what are some some takeaways. I would say they're just, just a, a few here. Very simply, Jesus was kind. Jesus was kind. As I mentioned, he, he was probably joyful and very comfortable in this situation. Around normal people, enjoying simple moments of life. Jesus was kind. And I think we should follow his example. I think some Christians make the wrong conclusion that they have to kind of walk around with long faces and everything always has to be serious and, and, and that's what godliness looks like. And, and, and they're so uptight that they, they're afraid they're, you know, they're going to mess up at any point and so they're all wound up and you put them in a social environment and, and perhaps many times you find them more concerned um, uh, about what everyone else is doing and in their minds, privately critiquing people and, and judging people. and I think Christians have to be very, very careful about it. In fact, little teaser for next week, we're going to find out what makes Jesus really upset at the temple right after this. So we find him there in a social environment where people are celebrating, probably very comfortable. He was kind and compassionate and helpful in this moment. But when he sees dead ritualism and what his household had deteriorated into, that got him fired up. And I was thinking about it this week. You know, sometimes Christians would look at a social event where perhaps something like this was taking place and and they would be more upset at that than a dead church that looked really good on the outside. And everyone was crossing their T's and dotting their I's really perfect. But actually, I think what we see from the life of Jesus is something very, very different. You know, the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy. Now, again, I, I think we have to be serious and careful 
about how we live and, and follow the scripture. But the example that Jesus sets here, he is just good. And he is kind. And he is thoughtful. He didn't have to meet this need. And he met the need, even though it was not some serious physical ailment, as I mentioned before, like blindness or something like that. But he took the moment to quietly meet the need in the moment. I think that tells us a lot about Jesus, a lot about his demeanor, a lot about how he lived, and it really sets for us a good example how we should live. Kind, comfortable around people, willing to help, meeting people's needs. I think that it serves us well to follow Jesus' example along these lines. I think number two, Jesus is focused. His words to his, his mom reveal to us, and other passages of Scripture reveal the same thing, that, that Jesus was focused about his purpose of why he was here. He came to do the will of his Father. In fact, he, he says that my food was to do the will of the one who sent me. He was so committed and so focused in life that, that he said, my actual sustenance, what, what nourishes me is the will of my Father. That's why I'm here. And so I think he sets a great example for the rest of his followers that, that we are here for a purpose and, and, and we should live focused lives. Can we enjoy simple pleasures and moments of celebration and, and, and the really the goodness of God in a variety of ways? Absolutely. But we don't go to the extreme where we, we, we're, it's always about a party and there's nothing serious about life. No, we are here. We've been bought with a price. And we are here to serve our Lord. And Jesus set that example. And number three, I think the third thing it shows us that Jesus is all-powerful. His power is clearly seen. In an ordinary week, in an ordinary moment, Jesus instantly did what no one else could do. He was showing himself as God. He created in this moment. He is the creator. He upholds all things by the word of his power, and he is able to provide everything that we need. He's the all-powerful God. He is able to do impossible things. So even the small areas of life, the ordinary areas, the everyday areas of life, I think Jesus wants us to come to him. Mary had faith that Jesus could do this. It may seem insignificant to us sitting in 2023, but it wasn't in this moment, and it wasn't to this group of people. And Jesus knows our needs. He is able to meet our needs. The small ones and the large ones. He is the all-powerful God. It's interesting, he chose not to create refreshment for his own uh, personal being. Remember just shortly, right before this, when Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness. Remember, Satan tempted him like, turn this into food. Turn these stones into food and, and, and help yourself. And he was being tempted 
in this moment, and Jesus chose not to create for himself what would bring him sustenance. But just shortly after, he chose to create for others nourishment and others satisfaction. Jesus is a kind, loving Savior who knows our needs. He knows your needs. And he is powerful enough to meet your needs. He's kind and thoughtful. He's focused. And he's all-powerful. And verse 11 says, what happened in the hearts of his disciples When they saw his glory, they believed. When they saw the glory of God, they believed. And I want to just explain to those who may be visiting with us today, maybe you've been here for a while. We've been talking about Jesus, who he is since the beginning of the year. We've been trying to exalt him. And you have yet to come to him And acknowledge him as your Lord and Savior. Can I just remind you that everyone has a problem coming into this world. We're all separated from our God because of our sin. For all have sinned and fallen short. Every single one of us. And there's no way that we can do anything in our lives to be able to bridge the gap between where we are because of our sin and where God is in his holiness. And so therefore, there there had to be something outside of ourselves and God in his grace sent his son Jesus Christ to be really the bridge for us. And Jesus is the Savior. He is the one who took upon him the sins of the world. And when these people who saw his glory and as this book unfolds, He's going to show his glory over and over and over. And when people saw the glory of Jesus, they turned to him. And maybe perhaps through the scriptures, you are seeing the glory of Jesus Christ for the first time. Can I I encourage you to call on the name of the Lord? Listen to this passage from Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the simple gospel. If you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Savior, he's the Messiah, he's glory revealed, and you will believe in your heart That he did come and he lived a perfect life and he went to the cross and he paid the penalty for your sins and he rose again and he was victorious over death and sin. If you will believe that in your heart, you will be saved. You can be saved today. So my friend, my brother or sister, please turn to him. Call on the name of the Lord and you'll be saved. And if you want to know more about that, one of the pastoral team members would love to speak to you about it after the service. If you're, if you're unsure about any of that, that that I've just spoken about, the invitation is always open. Come to Jesus and be saved. Because he is a kind Savior. 
He came for a purpose and he accomplished it. He was focused through his whole ministry. And he was the only one. He, he's a son of God and he conquered sin and death. And so we have hope in him today because he is our redeemer. And he makes all things new. Those pots of purification water probably symbolize something along these lines. And Jesus turning new wine, really the ceremonial aspect of that is no longer necessary through the blood of Jesus Christ. In fact, the gospel is presented many times as new wine, the the new covenant. Jesus saves. And if you're his follower and you can open your Bible and see his glory revealed as we have today, may it cause you to believe more and more in who he is and what he can do in your life. May your faith be strengthened and encouraged. May you be careful to follow all of the scripture, to strive to honor the person of Jesus Christ. He is our person, and he is good and kind. Would you bow with me as we close? Lord God, thank you in your infinite wisdom that you sent your son Jesus, and he walked among people in ordinary life, ordinary occasions, and he revealed himself as a kind, loving Savior that was powerful enough to meet every need. Jesus, thank you that you came focused on the Father's will and you accomplished what we could not accomplish. Jesus, you are our Messiah. You are our Savior. I pray if there's one here today who does not know you, that they would call on you in this moment and be saved as you have promised. And Jesus, thank you for your spirit that you have left. And you have filled us with your spirit. And when we're filled with your spirit, there is joy and love and peace that overflows. Your fruit can flow through our lives so that we actually look like Jesus. And so I pray that we would be a people who strive to be filled with the spirit. Thank you for our time today and your word. Jesus, take it and accomplish your purposes through it, I pray. 